Hello and welcome to episode 131 of Travel Stories from the Back Again and Gone podcast, being recorded again in the beautiful North Georgia mountains, North Georgia. And tonight, it's a nerd alert, and I'm talking about all that travel gear that I no longer use. Thanks for listening. Hello. If you are a new listener, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. And currently, I am about 90% through a 14-day road trip, and it has been a long, long time since I have been gone from home this long. I've done several over-the-weekend trips, you know, work, and then go do something cool over the weekend and then resume working. I think the last time I was gone for 14 days straight, it was a trip out to Dallas, Texas, probably in the early 2000s, 2001. That's my continuing series of updates from COVID in the hotels. I spent part of the time at a Homewood Suites in Duluth, Georgia. They were actually serving a hot breakfast each morning with most everything that you could grab with your fingers, be it bread or fruit, was wrapped in cling wrap. So I opted for Chick-fil-A two of the mornings while I was there. The TV remote still had a safety seal around it, and there was one lone COVID sticker on the bathroom mirror. And like I had predicted about two months ago, you would see less and less of those stickers in the hotel rooms. The Hilton Break the Seal sticker that they have typically across the door jam or entry into the room. Normally, it is affixed to the door into the door jam. In the case of this hotel, they actually had it fixed to the door jam in the side of the door lock, greatly reducing the amount of damaged paint. So my financial uh, stock tip of the day is sell your Sherwin-Williams stock if you were planning on Hilton and their need to buy lots and lots of paint to repair the sticker damage and taking you to the next level of your financial security. Let's take a quick spin around the travel interwebs. Have you ever heard of Mark Sadehi? Well, he was, and I say was, the global head of visual effects for Amazon Studio that was right before or up to the point that he decided to upgrade his flight. Also, you could have titled this one, Don't Abuse Your Company's Travel Policy. Amazon, like most company, has a travel policy, and all of them contain something along the lines of employees are required to fly coach or pay for their own seat upgrades. It seems like a very easy policy to abide by. Well, Today, he had a work trip from New Zealand or from here to New Zealand on Air New Zealand, about a 14-hour flight, and he didn't want to fly in the back of the plane because of existing back problems. Take it from somebody that has sciatica, I can completely relate. Well, Air New Zealand doesn't offer an upgrade list, so that wasn't an option for Stahy. So guess what? He did the next best thing. He used the company credit card to pay for the upgrade at the gate, and decided that he would handle it later. This became Sadehi's fourth worst idea of all time, leading up to his firing. And if you were to inquire about what the other three worst ideas were, number one, asking his assistant to run personal errands. Number two, sending his assistant a picture of, wait for it, a cartoon penis. So that's definitely not cool. Number three, instructing his assistant to break policy. So I'm guessing that the above-mentioned fourth worst idea was the icing on the cake for Sadehi. And of course, there is a whole backstory to the saga. There always is. 
And as you would expect, there is a lawsuit following it and following his firing. And our company has, for the most part, the exact same policy. If you want to ride in the front of the plane, get on the upgrade list or open your wallet. And I have on occasion, and actually make that one occasion, found a first class seat that was cheaper than a coach seat. Called my manager, sent him a screenshot of the pricing, and all was good. But when it comes to expense and travel accounts, you are the steward or caretaker of your company's money. On date night with your wife, if you don't order a $100 bottle of Silver Oak on a regular basis, you don't do it on the company's dime. And actually, even if you do order on a Friday night with your wife, you still don't do it on the company's dime without prior approval. Now, about 30 years ago, I had my first, uh, as you would call it, a real corporate job. And we had a company Christmas party at Wink Wink, the great macaroni grill. And at the time, company policy was that spouses weren't invited. This was 1990, 1991. You could get away with stuff like that. Well, a fellow employee didn't care for this policy before he left the restaurant to head back home. He ordered three to-go meals, one for his wife and one for each one of his kids. It was right about that time on December 20th that his career dissipation meter kicked into high gear and he was gone by early spring. Now my dad, the original road warrior of all time, worked for Xerox as an executive and they flew nothing but first class. It was actually policy. In fact, upper management would get upset if he didn't utilize his expense account to the fullest. Yes, the good old 1970s. From the stay in your lane department, Yeti has introduced a line of travel bags and luggage. We've all heard of Yeti. I have a couple pieces of their drinkware, their insulated beer can holder, as well as a 30 ounce travel mug. And they do a decent job of keeping my beverages cold. But if you happen to need a one gallon water bottle, Yeti does offer one for the hefty sum of $130. And of course, you can't forget their five gallon loadout bucket, which is eerily similar to the orange five gallon bucket that I have bought from Home Depot multiple times. And if you compare the buckets, both have a handle for easy carrying and both appear to hold stuff, be it a solid or a liquid, except the Yeti bucket is priced at $40, and if that isn't enough, feel free to add a lid for an additional $30. And most everybody has seen a Yeti cooler. Entry level for the 24 quart is about $200. It tops out with the 350-quart Tundra weighing in at $1,300. Here's my take on Yeti coolers. Yes, they will hold ice for days on end, but you will need two of them because the three inch thick insulating walls greatly reduce your storage space. Now here's a cooler hack or a life hack. Go purchase a 120 quart Coleman cooler. This will run you somewhere between 70 and 80 bucks. Head over to Home Depot, purchase a can or two of insulating foam. And while you're at Home Depot, you might as well pick yourself up one of their nice orange three or $4 buckets. When you get home, open your new cooler and open the lid and drill five or six holes on the underside of the lid and then shoot that insulating foam into those holes. Come back a few hours later with a serrated knife and remove all the excess foam. And while it might not hold ice for three or four days, it will significantly increase its insulation value. So in the words of Ron White, 
I told you all that to tell you this. Yeti, believe it or not, is now selling luggage. Their 22-inch carry-on is only $350. And this bag is half duffel, half hard shell. The dimensions are 22 inches by 14 inches by 9. And it's a two-wheel roller bag. And the bag looks eerily like something that Thule used to sell for about 50 bucks less. For comparison, I have an away bag. It is a hard shell four-wheel spinner. Set me back about 250 bucks. Actually comes with a removable power bank in it. It measures, it's a little bit bigger, measures 22.7 by 14.7 by 9.6 inches. Just a tad bit bigger, but that additional space does make a huge difference when it comes to packing. And look, I get Yeti's marketing proposition. They've spent a bunch of time and money. It's about adventure mixed with hardcore gear, and they have been successful at it. If you ask anyone with a Yeti product, whether they like it or not, they will almost always tell you that it's the best, just like my two drinkware pieces that I have from Yeti. But it's especially true if you have one of their coolers, because no one wants to feel like the Rube for spending $200 to keep a 12-pack of beer cold. On to tonight's topic. It is nerd alert time. We're going to be discussing gear, travel gear. Each December, January timeframe, I dedicate part of an episode to my yearly purge. Or in the words of Marie Kondo, I am participating in the life-changing magic of tidying up. And the purge is strategically focused on four areas of my life. My home office, my closet, my luggage, and my nightstand. And the actual purge is me getting rid of things that I no longer use or need after I convinced myself that I would always use them or that I would always need them. And as you could well imagine, most of the items purged are travel related. And some items are completely worn out, such as luggage. For me, luggage is a well thought out strategy. Sorry, Yeti. Unless you know what the road warrior in your life specifically wants when it comes to a piece of luggage, don't surprise them with a new piece. Give them a gift card or some kind of a store credit they'll be much happier. Now, some of the purged items have outlived their usefulness altogether, such as an eight meg compact flash card, which was all around in the year 2003, but not really that useful nowadays. And there's still other things have been replaced with something shinier and newer, such as a backpack. And if there's some usefulness left in an item, such as a travel umbrella, it gets donated to the AMVETS. And now you might ask yourself, why would you ever donate a travel umbrella? Excellent question. Oftentimes, I will end the year with several travel umbrellas in my nightstand. And the reason is that I forget to travel with my existing travel umbrella and end up purchasing one mid-trip. And then, of course, there's some items that just don't ever get donated. Like I said, luggage. I tend to hold on to luggage a little bit too long. The reason is that once I get comfortable with the piece, I've taken time to learn how to pack it, where my shoes go, how to arrange my packing cubes, I really don't want to get rid of it. So by the time I'm ready for a new piece, the old piece is just too banged up to be any good to anyone. That being said, I do know that foster groups and women's shelters will gladly accept used luggage regardless of their condition, but somehow I always remember it after I've tossed my old piece. Now I am a one piece luggage kind of person. Don't feel sorry for me. There are four other people here at Chateau Relaxo and I will conservatively guess that between the four of them, there are at least 12 pieces of luggage stored out in the garage. 
I know there are three three-piece matching sets, a couple of train cases, one 29-inch expandable bag that will hold at least two weeks' worth of clothes. And looking back now, I wish I had brought that piece. And don't forget the $10 Walmart roller bag that I bought to bring home booze from our Niagara Fall Canadian World Domination Tour. When it comes to backpacks and laptop cases, the top shelf in my closet is a shrine to retired bags. When my dad was in the workforce, he carried a briefcase. Actually, back then, all men carried a briefcase, and it was either one of two styles. It was either leather or a hard shell plastic concoction that was probably made by Samsonite. But my shrine consists of several backpacks, many of which are just torn from me over stuffing them. I know there's one roller bag, and these were touted as the Road Warrior's best friend. Save your shoulders, save your back by rolling your bag behind you. Well, there's two downfalls with a roller bag. First, they are big, which means you tend to fill them up with stuff you don't really need, making it tough to store them under airplane seats as well as the overhead luggage bin. And then second, it's tough to roll two bags. So you have to find some way to secure your laptop roller bag to your luggage when traveling. And then finally, there's a couple messenger bags. For me, these are a solid no-go, too flimsy, no protection for my electronics, requiring me to buy some sort of a neoprene protective sleeve, and they lack any sort of organizational pouches inside. And plus, I just look stupid with one slung over my shoulder. Then there's one last major category of stuff that gets purged but not donated, and that's anything with a cord or cable, Anything that requires a cord or a cable, if it has a cord or cable attached to it, or even a plain old cord or cable, it goes into a box along with all my outdated electronics. And just there's something tough about throwing away a perfectly good iPad version 2. And admit it, we all have a drawer or a box of some sort in our house with cables in it that we'll never use again. And that's one of the ways that we know that we're an adult, but we keep all that crap just in case we need it. And I'm guilty in being in the tech nerd industry. My collection is larger than most. And so part of the inspiration for this episode was a few weeks ago, I made it into our regional office, my first visit in almost a year. While there, I was looking for something and started going through desk drawers and found even more cords, cables, and long abandoned electronics. And then I noticed a pattern. All these cords, cables, and electronics seem to somehow be travel-related or related to my job. Now, to make matters even worse, or as a therapist might say, to put things in perspective, I have not lived in Atlanta since 2009, and we've moved our physical office twice during that time. That means the stuff in those drawers is bordering on antique when it comes to the tech world. And all road warriors carry travel gear or or work gear related to their job. While we can run out to Walmart to replace deodorant or socks that we forgot to pack, replacing job-related gear can be tough on the road. And even if you're a cubicle jockey, more than likely you take gear with you every single day. It's just called EDC, Everyday Carry. So since we're talking about cables and connectors, let's start with my pile or my box of cables and connectors. There are several printer cables in there in various lengths as well as various colors, some even with gold connectors because at one point that was all the rate. I have serial printer cables for mainframes as well as several parallel printer cables. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a new printer or laptop with either a serial or parallel connection on them. 
And here's a tip. Do you know why most printers don't come with a printer cable? Besides the added cost, the manufacturer has no idea what length cable you would need. And that, of course, gives them a chance to sell you one with a huge markup. And there's also a few USB, traditional USB printer cables in there as well. But guess what? Those are soon to be relics as well. I also have a baggie filled with all sorts of serial parallel and USB connectors and adapters. These adapters convert male conversions to female and vice versa. And there were times when we would just Frankenstein these cables and connectors together so that we could print from a PDA which is a personal digital assistant. This was the predecessor to the modern day smartphone, but we would figure these things together to print form for no other reason to say that we did it. And when I first started traveling, there was no Wi-Fi. You would find a few high-end hotels that offered hardwired network connections, but they were expensive and usually charged you by the day. At the time, most email, we were using Lotus Notes and web access was done using a modem just like you were at home. So in the year 2000, my 25 foot good old fashioned phone cord was a must have. You hoped that the phone jack was near the desk in the hotel room, but if it wasn't, you at least had 25 feet of cord to kind of move about the hotel room so that you could work in some sort of comfort. Fast forward a few years and the phone cable was replaced by an actual ethernet or network cable. Here's another life tip for you. If you ever fall off a cliff, grab either an ethernet cable or an extension cord. And the reason, because I guarantee you that it will get hung up on something long before you hit the ground and will more than likely save your life. Now, since I consider myself a fancy lad, my ethernet cable was retractable, just like a tape measure that you have in your workshop. Both those cables are now in a box. Occasionally, I will hardwire my laptop at home. It's been years since I've hardwired anything on the road to a laptop. And as a matter of fact, I don't even think that I have an ethernet cable in my backpack. For monitors, we have been through a variety of them. And to go with that is a variety of monitor cables, VGA, DVI, HDMI, put whatever initials you want. I've got them. I still actually carry a 20 foot HDMI cable as well as an HDMI display port adapter so that I can screencast for my phone. But for the most part, client sites have replaced traditional projectors with smart TVs. Most of those have Wi-Fi connections, so I don't really use a HDMI cable or a display adapter much anymore. In that box, there's also a variety of phone charging cables, Sony, Kyocera, Qualcomm, Apple, and Motorola. Years ago, every cell phone manufacturer had their own proprietary charging cable or connector, and they only provided you with one cable, and that was the cable that plugged into the wall Typically, it had some kind of an AC-DC converter at the end of it. There were none of the USB knuckles that are so prevalent everywhere. And there were no USB cables. So if you wanted a charging cable for your car, it was sold separately and plugged into your car's cigarette lighter. For reference, my current car doesn't even have a cigarette lighter, but it does have five USB ports. There's also a bird's nest of various makes and models of earbuds. When I get a new phone, I traditionally toss the earbuds into the box and it goes on with its life. I love my $15 Skull Candies. I've used them for about 12 or 13 years. Best bang for the buck. 
And of course, there's also a pair of Bose over-the-ear headphones as well as a pair of Tao noise-canceling headphones in the box. I also have a pile of memory and storage devices, USB thumb drives that hold as little as 10 megabytes, mini SD cards. I think most of those come from the kids' cell phones over the years. There's even a PCMCIA wireless card as well as a PCMCIA flash drive. All of them, for the most part, absolutely useless. Now, if you talk about hardware, there's some relics in there as well. We have a few digital cameras, I think a Sony, Canon, and a Yashica. My first digital camera was an HP 315. It was either 2.1 or 2.8 megapixels. It required four AA batteries, but the, uh, the plus side of it was that it actually had a digital display screen on the back so you could see what you were taking a picture of. The downside was that if you used it, you would drain those four AA batteries in no time at all. But this camera was really a game changer because at the time, most cell phones were just phones. They didn't have a camera in them. So we could now take pictures of job sites, pop out the memory card, and then email them back to the office. I bought that HP in 2001 at the same time that I bought the Scorcher Dell 486 Optiplex home PC. And I think I upgraded it by putting two CD drives in it and the entire package set me back about $2,000. Now, of course, since I have a bag of phone connectors, that must mean we have some old phones hanging around, and we do. Mostly they're iPhones. I think there's one Sony phone left in there someplace, but my first real smartphone was a Kyocera 7135. I bought it in 2003, 2004. It ran the Palm OS operating system, and it had cutting features such as access to your calendar, a web browser, as well as an MP3 player. The downside of it was that it used your cellular minutes, no Wi-Fi. And so back then in the early 2000s, your cell phone plan was tiered by the amount of minutes that you used each month. And to make matters worse, or I guess at the time, this was the best they could do, is that you transferred in information to the phone via your computer by using an actual physical cradle that the uh, that the phone sat in, which was just absolutely great for traveling. It had a color screen and a stylus, just like the Palm Pilot, but it would also burn through batteries in about three hours. So owning multiple rechargeable batteries was a requirement. And think about it, if your current phone only gave you about three hours of usage, what would you do? So let me ask you a question. How many computer mice do you have? I'm willing to bet, or I know for a fact, there are at least four in our box. Two of them have wires attached to it. One is a USB connector with the traditional LED on the bottom. The other is a serial connected mouse and has an actual trackball. Now, if you've never had a trackball mouse, normal maintenance would require you to flip the poor little mouse on his back remove the trackball, and then scrape this dirt and grime sweater that had formed on the sensors that read the trackball. There's also a couple traditional current day wireless mice. Those two still work. They're more than likely from me because I left mine at home or left it in a hotel room and had to buy a new one while traveling. Throw a couple of network routers in there. One is a blazing 100 megabyte wired router. Another one is a wireless router, again, both at probably about 100 megabytes in speed. 
But there was a time when network jacks weren't in every single room, so we all packed routers allowing multiple devices to get back out to the internet. Now, one of my favorite no longer needed pieces of travel gear is my little TP-Link Nano Travel Router, and this replaced that larger wireless router. It was small, but could be powered off of a USB power bank, so I didn't have to carry an adapter, I didn't have to find an outlet, but it turned any wired network drop into a virtual Wi-Fi access point. You could even insert a USB drive into the side of it, and it would become a portable file server. Super handy, but just no longer needed. And of course, speaking of USB power banks, I have multiples of them. And there was a period several years ago where every convention that I attended, those USB power banks were given out as swag. Most have never been used and probably don't hold enough juice to fully charge an iPhone. And there's also some travel-sized power strips in there. The fancy ones have a couple USB connections on them to make them a little bit more functional. How about another question? Your GPS unit, are you still using yours? TomTom, Garmin, Magellan, those were the standard back in 2007, 2008. So what did I decide to do? But I bought a Harman Kardon 300 GPS unit. And the reason was, and it made sense at the time, that Harman Kardon make great sounding audio equipment. So this would have to be absolutely the best GPS unit on the market when it came to sound, and it was. But there was one downside is there was no way to update the maps. So its usefulness was probably less than 24 months. If you're so interested, you can buy a Harman Kardon 300 on eBay for about 15 bucks. Also in that box is an external CD DVD drive. Several years ago, computer manufacturers stopped including CD drives specifically in laptops. Thanks, Apple, for blazing that trail. But at the same time, while the CD-DVD drives were disappearing, software was still being distributed on CDs and DVDs. So with the current PCs lacking any way to install it, a $50 external CD drive came to the rescue. There's also a Zoom audio recorder, a physical audio handheld recorder, which I originally started recording this podcast on. It required way too much editing. Thank you, Zoom, but traditionally now I record this on the Zoom software platform, so I guess it's a trade for a trade. There's also a 2005 ILO MP3 player in there as well. And at the time, there was pretty much, you had to download any kind of MP3s if you weren't using an Apple product to a folder and then manually uh, transfer them to your MP3 player. And I'll never forget, I actually wrote a little batch file program that once I plugged in the ILO, hit a go button, it cleaned out that folder and moved everything to my MP3 player. I also toted around an iPack. This was a handheld pocket PC. My model of choice was the iPack 3630. And this was a cutting edge PDA at the time. It was very similar to my Kyocera smartphone, but it ran the Windows Pocket PC operating system and not the Palm OS which made it much more compatible with third-party applications. Now, it did also transfer data using a cradle, but they did offer a slide-in Wi-Fi card, making it much more useful, didn't use up cell phone minutes when you wanted to, uh, to browse the web. And I recall dropping about 500 bucks on this baby, and I saw one on eBay recently for about $30. There's also an iPad 2, 
It still boots, but there's just not enough space on it to load the current or even the last five versions of the iOS operating system. And then there's stuff that I kind of drag out of the box back and forth. My Kindle e-reader, since I'm not flying as much, I really haven't been reading as much. Probably need to just pull that out and lay it on the nightstand. My GoPro camera, which I love. And if I'm going somewhere interesting, I'll typically bring it. But more times than not, I just forget about it. And then if I'm going to a meeting or an event, I'll normally grab one of those power strips and a roll of duct tape. And I am a self-confessed early adopter, especially with gear and gadget. And much of this I attribute to my father. Our first home computer was 1983, maybe 84. It had to have a box fan running to keep it cool. It actually had some sort of a modem, but you took the phone receiver and put it into a cradle. I think it was called an audio coupler or something of that source. He owned one of the first VCRs when it came out, and I believe he dropped about a thousand bucks on it. But he did teach me to find value and quality in what I was purchasing, and it has paid off for me. My DOP kit is at least 15 years old. I paid way too much money for it. I have a travel wallet, a leather travel wallet that's older than that. There's a Mont Blanc pen that I've used for over 30 years, and I have an old fixed blade buck knife from 1981. So as they say, buy once, cry once, but there is value in buying quality gear. However, I wish there was some way to overcome the planned obsolescence with so much of my other stuff. Now, as an added travel gear bonus during this road trip, I did stop by my parents' house. And while there, decided that we would go through my dad, the original Road Warriors laptop bag. Last time he really traveled for work was, I'm going to say 2003, 2004, just by checking out the dates on some of the things in there. There was a 2004 calendar. So that's what I'm using as my reference. This was an old roller bag. And after we blew the dust off it, here's what we found. A compact Presario 700 laptop still with the Windows XP sticker on it. Of course, he had long forgotten the password. This little butte probably weighs 10 or 11 pounds. There's a Targus retractable phone cord for the modem. So he was also or still is a fancy lad. A Netgear USB Wi-Fi dongle. So the compact Presario did not come equipped with Wi-Fi access. Various, uh, he had a medicine bag as me. So he had various Excedrin and Pepsid AC packets in there, all of which expired in 2002. A brass monogrammed Logitech calculator. Never knew they made calculators. I thought Logitech made traditionally mice as well as keyboards. But there's that in there. The ultimate find was a Visor Handspring Platinum PDA. And once I saw this, I remembered he had bought one um, before I did. So like I said, he was an early adopter. And the Visor Platinum was also powered by the Palm OS, but it did have some offerings different than the traditional Palm. It had a whopping two megabytes of RAM storage for addresses, appointments, to-do list. It also synchronized via a USB cable. It worked on both PC or Mac and fully customizable and compatible with thousands of Palm OS apps. And then it had expansion slots or expansion modules for MP3 player, pagers, modems, GPS, and video games. If you so are so inclined to want a visor handspring, less than 20 bucks on eBay. And if I could find the cradle for it, I will power it up and see what's on there. 
From there, we ventured over to his armoire, and inside there, we found even more nerd alert treasures. He also has a baggie full of cables, connectors, and earphones. So there's proof that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Three CD discmans, two actually from Sony and one from Colby. And if you've never heard of Colby, and I don't know if they're still in business or not, but this was an electronics brand that you purchased from when you needed a gift for the office Christmas party or some distant relative. It was kind of like the, uh, the side chick to Sony. There's actually a first-generation iPod shuffle, no screen, one single button, no charging cable. A cap came off the bottom of it, and it had a USB connector that you inserted directly into the computer. It resembles a package of chewing gum, and it had a whopping 512 megabytes on, of storage. I looked it up on eBay, again, about 12 bucks. So possibly thousands of dollars worth of travel gear when it was originally purchased that you could currently buy with a $100 bill and get some change back. Really amazing to go down the, uh, the travel gear highway or the retrospective. That wraps up this travel gear show and all the stuff that my dad and myself no longer need or use. If you want detailed show notes, links, and pictures of some old travel gear, head over to podpage.com slash travel hyphen stories. That's podpage.com slash travel hyphen stories. If you have a question or comment, you can leave me a voicemail at anchor.com. Shoot me an email, travelfrick at gmail.com. That's travelfrick at gmail.com. Travel safe, stay safe, and thanks for listening. Thank you.